Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week here on Monaco 24. This week, we look at the design of the Danish Embassy in London. The courtyard is really nice. Being a part of what Anne Jacobsen likes to do is uh, taking in nature into his architecture and having this uh, quiet space in central London. It's really nice. Plus, a selection of summary tracks for you. All that and much more here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with the latest edition of the Foreign Desk Explainer. Belgium has returned a tooth, the last remains of the murdered Congolese leader Patrice Lumumba, to members of his family. Andrew Muller explains why. The restitution to their original owners of historical artefacts acquired in dubious circumstances has been a recurring theme of recent years, and probably quite rightly. Indeed, the Foreign Desk did a whole thing on this in episode 381 last April, and you can hasten to that just as soon as you finished absorbing the next few minutes of this, which we absolutely promise gets entrancingly weird. Because joining more traditional cultural objects, such as statues, jewellery and the mummified heads of ancestors returning whence they came, is a tooth. Specifically, a gold-crowned tooth, the only mortal remains of Patrice Lumumba, Prime Minister of the Democratic Republic of Congo for a few months in 1960. In a ceremony earlier this week at the Egmont Palace in Brussels, hosted by Belgian Prime Minister Alexander de Croo, Lumumba's tooth was formally returned by Belgium to Lumumba's family. Offering apologies on behalf of Belgium's government, de Croo noted that it isn't normal that Belgians held on to the remains of one of the founding fathers of the Congolese nation for six decades. It is casting no aspersions on de Croo's sincerity to note that, depressingly, in the broader sweep of Belgium's interactions with Congo, the crass souveniring of Lumumba's tooth is, or was at the time, absolutely and wretchedly normal. Many countries have a what-if story, a wistfully contemplated parallel universe in which maybe if one bad thing never happened, then maybe a lot of subsequent and consequent bad things wouldn't have happened either. Patrice Lumumba is the Democratic Republic of Congo's variant of this imaginary nostalgia. The basics of Lumumba's brief but extraordinary life are these. In the late 1950s, he was among the founders of the Mouvement National Congolais. The MNC was a party dedicated to securing independence for what was, then, still the Belgian Congo, the colony which had succeeded the Congo Free State, infamously the private property of Belgium's King Leopold II, who had presided over his fiefdom with a dismal mix of brutality and indifference. In May 1960, the new nation of the Republic of Congo held its first democratic election. It was won by Lumumba's faction of the MNC, and he was duly sworn in as the new country's first prime minister on June 24, 1960. He was 34. Je vous salue 
au nom du gouvernement congolais. À vous tous, mes amis, qui avez lutté sans relâche à nos côtés, je vous demande de faire. Lumumba was a young man with big ideas which caused nerves to jangle in various foreign capitals. Given that Lumumba's big ideas were mostly to do with maybe deploying his country's colossal mineral riches to the benefit of his country's mostly poor people, they shouldn't have been controversial. But it was perceived that Lumumba was, if not necessarily sympathetic to the Soviet Union, perfectly willing to accept help from Moscow, whether offered in good faith or not. Lumumba could probably have played his hand more tactfully, but he didn't deserve what happened. Military mutinies and secessionist revolts were fomented. Belgium did not much bother to conceal its involvement in these, and nor did the United States, who feared that Lumumba was some Congolese Castro and had rejected his requests for investment and assistance. They caught him on his way to Stanleyville and flew him back. Patrice Lumumba securely wrote. On September 5th, 1960, Lumumba was sacked by President Joseph Kazavubu, after which Lumumba tried to sack Kazavubu. Lumumba's army chief of staff, Colonel Joseph Desiree Mobutu, threw a coup d'etat in Kazavubu's favour. Lumumba was arrested, detained, beaten, tortured and, on or around January 17, 1961, executed by firing squad. His recapture was quite a triumph for Colonel Mobutu, who now saw his enemy arrive. Lumumba's bonds are tightened. They were taking no chances. And his wife and child watch his humiliation. The whole affair, of course, serves to underline once again the conditions prevailing in the Congo. It's not enough to arrest a man. He must apparently be beaten up as well, then put him on trial later, no doubt. His body, along with those of two associates, Morris Mpolo and Joseph Okito, was dismembered and dissolved in acid, the bones ground to powder. A Belgian gendarme, Gerard Soete, pocketed at least one of Lumumba's teeth. Colonel Mobutu would become Mobutu Sese Seiko, a vicious, ridiculous and palpably insane tyrant who would plunder and terrorise Congo, or as he renamed it, Zaire, until 1997. Mobutu's legacies include the largely disused runway he installed to enable Concorde to perform such vital state functions as flying his birthday cakes from Paris. The return of Lumumba's tooth to what is now the Democratic Republic of Congo is the latest in a long series of hesitant steps Belgium has taken towards rapprochement with its former colony. In 2002, Belgium apologised for its role in Lumumba's murder. In 2018, a square was named after Lumumba in Brussels. Earlier this month, King Philippe of Belgium visited the DRC and pulled, regarding Belgium's historical behaviour in the vicinity, the always delicate, deepest regrets short of actually apologising manoeuvre. On the occasion of my first trip to Congo here, I reaffirm my deepest regrets for these wounds of the past. It is probably safe to take a lot of Belgium's outreach at face value. Like many former imperial powers, it is still trying to figure out what debts its history might owe the present. 
But Belgium does still have more base interests in DRC. The oldest continually functioning private company in the country is the engineering giant Forest Group, established in 1922. And Belgium, like everyone else, needs the DRC's vast and undertapped reserves of coltan, lithium and cobalt, among other mineral treasures. Patrice Lumumba's tooth will be flown to Kinshasa and interred at a memorial site. Three days of mourning will be observed in Lumumba's honour later this month, around the 62nd anniversary of the independence of the Democratic Republic of Congo, a country which might, had Lumumba been allowed to live, have enjoyed 62 better years than the 62 it has endured. We can only wish that wherever you are, you can be proud of your children, Être fier de tes enfants, your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, et de tes arrière petits-enfants. Père, à présent. Father, welcome back to the country. Opi. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. And for our latest edition of Toast Stories, we head to Copenhagen. Christian Gring visits a new town development in the city that is struggling to develop a personality of its own and a sense of place for its residents. For many, Copenhagen conjures images of colorful buildings tightly squeezed along busy harbors. Maybe they think of old cobblestone streets winding through the medieval city center or of the crowds of Danes sitting out in streets and parks, drinking Carlsbergs and coffees, and congregating in the sun wherever it shines. But if you hop on the M1 metro line and ride just 10 minutes south from the old city center, you'll find yourself in a sort of reverse image of Copenhagen, a place where the buildings are large and gray, the roads are wide and straight, and the historic city gives way to a much more modern international style. This mirror to Copenhagen is called Ørestel, and the region was once Copenhagen's big vision for how the city would redefine itself coming into the 21st century. To do this, Copenhagen created Ørestel as a new town, a concept originated in post-World War II England, where a community is entirely pre-planned and built with the intention that it will be fully self-sustaining. Ørestel was to be a town unto itself, not just a housing district for Copenhagen. But over the past three decades, the Ørestel project has had some very mixed successes, and it carries important lessons for Copenhagen and other cities as they continue to grow and plan major projects for the future. Today, Ørestel is a roughly five and a half kilometer corridor that begins where the traditional neighborhood of Isensboiga ends. From the northwestern tip of the island of Ama, Ørestel extends as a narrow line directly south until it runs into the preserved natural area of Calvabulfela. On a map, it looks a bit odd to see a town plotted along such a straight and narrow line. They typically radiate out in a more circular shape from a center point, but Ørestel follows this linear path for a very specific reason. It follows the metro. That's because Copenhagen's metro system was actually built in conjunction with the development of Ørestel. In fact, the symbiotic metro and town were proposed in the same piece of legislation, the Ørestel Act of 1992. And in many ways, 
the Urastel Act had just as much to do with building the metro as it did with building a town. You see, though Denmark is known as a very rich and prosperous nation today, Copenhagen experienced a difficult economic period from the 1970s through the early 90s. So when Urastel was proposed in 1992, it was not only sold to Parliament as a new town for people to live in, it was proposed as a public-private partnership between Copenhagen, Denmark, and private financiers who would bring in an influx of international capital and new money into Denmark. To attract investors, Copenhagen would plan to create the metro line, which would serve as the major transport artery through Urestel. In turn, the municipality would sell plots of land along the proposed metro to these private investors, and the money made from selling that land would be used to finance the metro itself. The land was attractive because of the metro, and the metro was to be built with funds secured by land sold on the promise of its own creation. It was both the chicken and the egg in a sort of self-fulfilling financial prophecy. And now today, you can easily see how this financing deal laid the basis for the shape and rhythm of Urestel. The town is dominated by massive architectural projects, many of them congregated around each stop of the metro. Across the street from Urestel Station, Fields Shopping Center, Denmark's largest indoor mall, takes up a full square block complete with a trampoline park, children's playgrounds, and a gym. Just a few hundred meters away from Fields sits the recently completed Royal Arena, a massive indoor stadium that holds thousands of spectators for international sports events and Denmark's largest concerts. From there, one metro stop away brings you to Bella Sky Hotel, twin buildings with a sharp and sleek glassy style that contains four stars, 23 floors, and if you haven't sensed a theme yet, was the largest in Denmark when it was completed. Adding even further to Urestel's architectural prowess, the region is also home to three buildings from BIG, the firm headed by Denmark's biggest star architect, Bjarke Ingels. These include Eight House, which earned the distinction of Housing Building of the Year from the 2011 World Architecture Festival. So, Urestel has succeeded in some of its goals. It's attracted some major investment, its development spurred the creation of the Copenhagen metro system, which has since been expanded multiple times, and it attracts architecture fanatics and students to the region to visit this new town and see the buildings and people who live there. Which brings us to Urestel's failures. In many ways, Urestel looks like an architecture model that's been scaled up from a boardroom table to life-size and in many ways, to live there feels like living in a model. That is, it doesn't feel like a place built with a focus on the people actually living there. In the older neighborhoods of Copenhagen, like nearby Islandsboiga, local shops dominate the storefronts and people fill in the spaces, shopping, eating, or just sitting out in the sun. It's the sense of local character and a human-scaled neighborhood that makes living in Copenhagen so appealing. But because of its linkage to the metro, Urestel feels more like a series of station islands within a long, empty ocean of concrete than it does a contiguous community. It has the bones of infrastructure, but its wide distances between buildings and a lack of human density make it feel like it's missing the rest of what it takes to be a community. This new town's top-down creation came at the expense of any bottom-up personality, 
so that it not only looks much different than the rest of Copenhagen, but to live there feels much different than the rest of Copenhagen. And Urestel is not alone. Since its creation, Copenhagen has continued to create newer neighborhoods, such as Sulhound to the west, Norvest to the north, and Norhound to the northeast. Many of these have so far faced similar struggles of a top-down approach resulting in little local character. But that doesn't mean it'll always be this way. Many of Copenhagen's most vibrant neighborhoods today dealt with their own growing pains throughout history, and Urestel is still relatively young and undergoing development. Maybe there's a chance that it can change its path and develop that local energy that's currently missing. But that change in culture won't happen without a change in developmental strategy, so that the focus is shifted away from a global international scale that Urestel was founded on, and the priority is brought back to the local, human-centered approach that makes the rest of Copenhagen so great. You are listening to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And now a highlight from my show, The Stack. It's about one of the panels for our Quality of Life conference in Paris. It's all about the French view. Hosted by Monaco's Tyler Brulé and Sophie Grove, they looked at the French view from media to politics, from morning radio and TV news to its impressive print industry. How has it remained so inventive? On stage, it was veteran journalist Christine Ocran and Le Monde's CEO, Louise Dreyfus. They joined Tyler and Sophie for more. I think quality journalism in France still has very high standards, of course with print media, and Louis has actually managed to make Le Monde Group, not only the daily, but several news magazines, a success and a business success, which is even more difficult. And I now do more radio, and it's very interesting that the oldest media, which is radio, is actually in a sort of rejuvenation phase, which is fascinating because it allows for more time, as you pointed out. I have a one hour long program every Saturday morning about foreign affairs, one hour, and that's a luxury. I mean, it's another kind of luxury. And Louis, it's interesting to talk about Le Monde because in many ways we're nostalgic for that format, the, the beautiful print, the, the kind of commitment to print. But you've been tasked in many ways with reforming this, this kind of wonderful bastion of journalism and making it um, diversifying, but also modernizing. Can you talk us through that process a bit? I think there's several things that we can keep about our track records about the last, uh, the past 10 or 11 years at Le Monde. First thing that we, we chose with our shareholders to invest in content and saying, and it was a, a bet, saying uh, the more journalists we will have, the better the newspaper will be, and the more revenues we will have. At this point of time, many media shareholders were thinking the contrary. Too many journalists working, not enough. We should downsize the editorial staff, we will save money, and we'll save, and we'll make this newspaper profitable. We showed exactly the country, we'll invest, and we'll put more and more journalists. 11 years later, when I took the arm of the group at Le Monde in 2010, there were 300 journalists at Le Monde. Right now, there is 520 journalists at Le Monde. So it's a huge change. 
it's obviously more capacities to cover news, to do different formats. So we, we launched AM, which is a huge success, even in terms of circulation, with an increase of 30% of circulation, but in terms of advertising, in terms of renewal of our readers. And so there's budget to get it to Zurich, is what you're saying? Yes, exactly. Okay, good. We will have a, a private car to, to transport um, your issue of AM every week. <laughs> Tyler, I heard you. So something that it was interesting, and I think it's quite gratifying for the staff, is that if you invest in the staff, if you invest in talent, as Bruno was saying, in a luxury goods industry, you may find a business model. And in this case, the more you invest, the more you gain subscribers, you must gain revenues, so you invest more, and you create a gap with your competitors. Like this year in 2022, my revenues from digital subscribers of Le Monde will be big enough to pay for the entire digital stuff of Le Monde. Meaning if the print edition of Le Monde will stop today, I'm still profitable. We are continue to invest in the print. We launched um, a quarterly magazine called The Taste of M um, two months ago. But we know that at some point of time, we need to be independent from this legacy industry. And we made it. So that's, I think, the question is, how can you keep a momentum, quite active momentum, but protect your brand? And at some point of time, it's difficult for the staff. So you need to recruit new talents, as Bono was saying but you know also to protect your staff that where we have plenty of talents that will discover a podcast, will discover audition snapshot, and how you can make the two, two move. It's you, you need to invest in what you do, and you need to go to reach a new audience. And from our On This Day historical episode, we reflect on an episode in which intimate correspondences did play a part. Please stand by for the broadcast of a message by His Excellency, the Governor-General of India. The message in English will be followed by a Hindustani translation. The actual last Governor-General of India was Chakravarti Rajagopalachari, who stood down on January 26, 1950, when India, independent since 1947, detached itself completely from the British Crown and became a republic. The inauguration of the Republic entered a two-centuries-old office, that of the Governor-General of India. Sri Rajagopalchari, the last Governor-General in the line begun by Warren Hastings, and the first Indian to hold this high office, leaves Government House on the morning of January the 27th. departure leaves a void in the hearts of the Prime Minister and members of the Cabinet. His mature wisdom and simple dignity have been of inestimable value during a difficult and formative period of India's history. Rajagopalachari had been sworn in on June 21st, 1948. It had been a significant moment in two respects. For the first time since variations on the office had been inaugurated in 1773, India's Governor-General, the nominal representative of the Crown, was Indian. And for the last time, India's Governor-General was British. In this specific instance, not merely British, but British up to and beyond the point of caricature. 
Londoners turned out in their thousands to give a tremendous and well-deserved welcome to Admiral Lord Louis Batten, driving in state, accompanied by his wife, to receive the freedom of the city. To extend his full title after inhaling the requisite lungfuls of oxygen, he was Admiral of the Fleet, the Right Honourable the Earl Mountbatten of Burma. Reciting the complete list of Mountbatten's post-nominal entitlements would take us much of the rest of this monologue, but he had comfortably more letters after his name than the English language does in its alphabet. Among the more picturesque of a Christmas tree's worth of decorations pinned to his tunic were the baubles associated with a Knight of the Garter, a Knight Grand Cross of the Order of the Bath, a Knight Grand Commander of the Most Exalted Order of the Star of India, a Knight Grand Cross of the Order of the Star of Romania, a Knight Grand Cross of the Order of the White Elephant, and the Order of the Nile, fourth class. Clearly difficult to please the Egyptians. He was a great-grandson of Queen Victoria and cousin of King George VI, who he represented in India. Mountbatten's resignation as Governor-General of India on this day, 74 years ago, was the second time he'd stepped down from a vice-regal role in India. Ten months previously, he'd relinquished the title of Viceroy. I have a message from His Majesty the King to deliver to you today. This is His Majesty's message. On this historic day, when India takes her place as a free and independent dominion in the British Commonwealth of Nations, I send you all my greetings and heartfelt wishes. Freedom-loving people everywhere will wish to share in your celebration. It had, of course, not been as simple as that. Away from the painstakingly affable official ceremonies marking the end of British rule in India, one of the 20th century's great horrors had occurred, the displacement and or slaughter of millions as the British Raj had splintered into one India and two Pakistans. The degree of responsibility for the carnage, which may be apportioned to India's last viceroy and second-last governor-general, has since gainfully employed a minor industry of historical inquiry. If one seeks a villain, Mountbatten is a convenient one. He was, obviously, an old-school imperial overlord, a role which generally, and usually rightly, evokes little sympathy. He was also personally monumentally self-regarding and vainglorious. For all that, he got on well with Indian National Congress leader Yawalal Nehru, and it is generally accepted that Mountbatten's wife, Edwina, got on with Nehru rather better than that, though the degree to which this affected Mountbatten's conduct as he sought to lower the Union Jack as peacefully as possible is uncertain. What is certain is that Mountbatten appeared to think none the worse of his rival. I shall always remember one sentence he used. He said... We are little men serving a great cause, but because the cause is great, something of that greatness falls upon us also. Greatness has indeed fallen upon him, and I'm confident that in the years to come, when an objective history can be written, he will be regarded as one of the really great men, a man that I'm proud to be privileged to call a real friend. Crowds gathered in New Delhi on the eve of the departure of two sincere friends of India 
Earl and Countess Mountbatten. Making their way through the huge throng, their excellencies received the grateful farewells of the Indian people, whose affectionate regard has upheld them through all the strenuous months of office. His is a name that still resurfaces when people ponder the question of whether individuals direct history or history directs individuals. There was never much doubt that Mountbatten believed the former. It was certainly, at the time, believed on his behalf. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator. For the Monaco Daily, we spoke with historian Hannah Rose Woods on her new book, Rule Nostalgia, A Backwards History of Britain. The book shows that a sentimental reverence for history is not a blight exclusive to the Brexit era. The people of Britain have spent the last several centuries looking wistfully back at the good old days, even if the old days may not have been, on considered reflection, all that good. Andrew Muller began asking Hannah about the structure of the book and where the idea to write it in reverse came from. The topic and the structure occurred to me kind of simultaneously. But, you know, I think what I wanted to do was to really harness nostalgia's kind of perpetual backwards glance itself. Um, Because I think there is, there's such an irony to our perpetual nostalgia that, that we look back to people and that we forget that they themselves were looking backwards to what had gone before them. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, that can, that can really help us kind of look at British history itself in a new light. Um, you know, nostalgia doesn't necessarily give us an accurate perspective on the past. It, it, you know, in fact, it kind of rarely gives us a completely accurate perspective. But the different ways in which people at different times have idealized different aspects of the past, you know, I think that tells us a huge amount about how they viewed the changing societies in which they lived. If we think about English nostalgia in particular, which has been a hugely animating force of the politics of recent years, which is is where the book comes in, Mm. what's your sense of how that's evolved? Because... Obviously, a lot of the nostalgia which underpinned Brexit was nostalgia for a very idealised notion of the Second World War, which obviously yeah. people have only been nostalgic for since about 1946 by definition. But before that, when British people looked back, what were they looking back to? Are there constant themes or is it always just whatever was a generation or two generations ago? Yeah, I mean, I think there are certainly, you know, huge themes of continuity, you know, as far back as we want. I think certainly nostalgia for the like a lost natural landscape is is perpetual because, you know, our landscapes are constantly changing. Um, But I think in terms of Brexit, one story I kind of I, I wanted to highlight was just how old these debates about decline are. You know, I I think kind of certainly the Leave campaign was, you know, interpreted by a lot of the media as Britain having really struggled to come to terms with the realities of decline since the end of the Second World War, uh, decolonisation, kind of diminishing global ambitions. But actually, you know, this kind of these anxieties over imperial decline and a kind of weary and shrinking island nation were 
baked into discourses of Britishness, you know, before the empire even quite reached its height, you know, in the 1890s, say, you know, there were huge anxieties about a declining empire. Um, you know, Britain was seen to be this kind of weary titan that was being outcompeted by, by Germany and America economically. Um, you know, the scramble for Africa in the 1880s had created this kind of undermining a British complacency that it could continue, you know, expanding an empire forever when other countries in Europe were kind of getting in on it too. Um, and I think actually, you know, really, when I went back to the 16th century, I kind of realised that imperial nostalgia was was baked into the British Empire even before it had begun, um, even before kind of Britain had begun. You know, John Dee, Elizabeth I's advisor, you know, even before Britain established its first colony in America, you know, he was kind of selling and he was calling it the British Empire to, you know, an English monarch. And he was saying, you know, this is a way to kind of recover lost glory. You know, and he was drawing all these kind of mythic images of lost English greatness. And, you know, he was saying, you know, to recover what we've lost, we have to start something new by, by expanding, you know, Britain's empire abroad. So, yeah, I think, you know, these things have taken different forms at different times, but we've, we've never entirely been without them. And this is from our food and drink show, The Menu. Design events aren't generally known for their food, but Ljubljana's design by Anu has made a sausage one of the main exhibits of this year's edition, which runs until October. And not just any old banger, but the sausage of the future. Our man in Slovenia's capital, Guy Deloni, went to take a bite. Welcome to the Ljubljana Design Biennial. We're here in the courtyard of Fujina Castle in Ljubljana. And this time round, the catering is actually part of the main exhibition. Because as I look in front of me, the caterers are providing everybody who comes forward with a bit of an appetite with two different types of sausage. But these aren't any old sausages. These are the sausages of the future. My name is Caroline Niebling. I'm from the Netherlands. I'm a food futurist or a product designer, a bit in the middle. Uh, I design sausages, amongst other things. And also for the exhibition here in Ljubljana, I have designed a Slovenian future sausage containing buckwheat and other things. This is the first time I have seen a sausage at a design biennial. I really wanted to do a project that meant something, that could contribute to uh, all the changes that we need to make in the world. And I just felt food was uh, one of the biggest fields to, to work in, where things need to change. And then I found a sausage and I just fell in love with it. Like, it's so old. It's 5,000 years old. And um, it has this development ever since, which is incredible. But still, we are making sausages um, according to the same recipe as 5,000 years ago. It's incredible. And then I thought, okay, um, there's an existing industry, and so there's also potential to help them evolve into a future where we need to eat less meat um, and more other ingredients like vegetables, And I have to say, like, it is a design project. You have to think about similar things if you do a chair or a lamp. You think about materials, shelf life, uh, aesthetics, um, production, um, efficiency, all these type of things. People are very proud of their sausages around the world. 
They're going to say to you, what's wrong with our sausages? There is an opportunity to reduce meat consumption and I think that's unavoidable. Um, but it's exactly that um, yeah, the delicate balance of uh, trying to have people try something new without uh, telling them uh, what to do or telling them off. So I really want to say like, butchers need to continue making all of those amazing sausages and they're incredible. The good part is that with the same machines and the same techniques and drying chambers and everything, the butcher can experiment with more vegetarian options, but also half-half, or just increasing a little bit more and more and more other ingredients in there. So it's, it's really about an evolution from the one sausage to another. But it takes more than a designer to make a sausage. So to fine-tune the recipe and production, Caroline turned to the chef at one of Ljubljana's top restaurants and one of the city's best butchers. I am Igor Jagodic. I'm a chef, executive chef in the restaurant Strelec on Ljubljana Castle. Do you have any strong feelings about sausages? Yes, I have. Sausage is one of the Slovenian traditional dishes. Usually we make only meat sausages. That's why this was interesting for me, to make something new, to make something what we also can use later in our restaurants and uh, to do maybe some interesting stuff for our, for our guests, not only for this exhibition. And how well does the sausage, or as you've got two of them, you've got the vegetarian, yes. vegan one, and you've got the one which has got some meat in it, how well do they fit in to your philosophy at, at Strelec? Perfect. It's great because we can play with the taste of the sausage. We can play a lot with the ingredients which we will add to the sausage. And it's uh, really nice that we can also change a little bit the sausage, this sausage, this recipe. Uh, depends on the season of the year. How closely aligned are you with Caroline's philosophy that sausages need to change? Yes, this idea, zero waste, changing the recipes so that the sausages are getting more uh, sustainable, this is great. And uh, traditional sausages is not, is not some, something what we would serve in a restaurant, but these sausages are definitely... Hi, my name is Marko Butalic, I'm from Slovenia, I'm a butcher, born and raised, my father was a butcher... We had fun. And of course the sausage that came out pretty, pretty, pretty good. And then the technique how to actually make the sausage, how to fill the casings and uh, make them into a portion. So that's, that was my input. Yeah. And that was your input as well into the vegan sausage as well as the yeah. non-vegan one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Me and Igor, uh, we made both. Um, the vegan and the partly uh, meat one. Um, the biggest challenge is the vegan one because of the casings. The vegan casings need to be improved. They need to put more research into it and make them more flexible, stronger. They're pretty fragile considering how easy it is to use the pork casings. So if the casings would be stronger, I think the future would be easier could we get a couple over here, yeah. right, right now? Uh, what, what, one of each we can try? Yeah. Which one should I try first? I think the vegan one. Okay. Hmm. There's a lot of texture. <laughs> yeah. 
what am I tasting in, in, in there? I mean, I'm, I'm maybe getting a sense of some mushroom in there. Mushroom, yeah. Dried uh, yurchki. I don't know how to pronounce it in English. There's buckwheat and a lot of herbs. Yeah. That's it. Keeps it fresh. Yeah. And let's go for the let's go for the meat now. Oh, I can really taste the buckwheat in this one. Yep. Even even more so than the meat, actually. I'd say it's a surprising sausage, both of them, because from the outside, this looks like you're going to get something quite traditional, which cuts like a normal sausage. Yep. And inside, it's a, it's a little cornucopia of ingredients, which, um, as you say, gives you quite a lot to figure out. We, we need to get used to new things, um, but on the end of the day, I'm certain this will give you less stomach ache or any kind of bad um, breath and um, feeling better from these sausages than the regular ones from meat. Like, and I'm a butcher and I can confirm that's really the case here. So the designer sausage passes the taste test and Caroline hopes this won't just be a limited edition. My ultimate goal is spark sausage movement from smaller butchers and I think this is still the the perfect time because there's all these um, people starting to pick up old artisanal techniques and um, make those products like where I live the amount of uh, young sausage makers uh, has doubled tripled in the last few years so I want to reach them and that means the sausage of the future could be on your plate sooner than you think it's the kind of design anyone can get their teeth into. For Monocle in Ljubljana, I'm Guy Delaunay. You are listening to The Curator. And now, from Monocle Design Extra, we look at the design of the beautiful Danish embassy in London. The entrance to the uh, residence is a very uh, uh, simple, elegant uh, space with only uh, one rug and, and uh, two egg chairs and, and a coffee table by Anne Jacobsen too. And this coldish makes it uh, like a transition towards coming from the outside and then entering a, a private home of, uh, of the Danish ambassador. I think that's very nice. And then entering the, yeah, the dining room at last where, where the colorings are, are dark and warm. Um, the building was uh, inaugurated in 1977, so it was uh, some years after the death of Arne Jacobsen, but he was in the, in the design process before he died, and it stands as manifestation of how his style in architecture actually evolved, but also gives a lot of uh, resemblances to the way he worked in his, early in his career. There is this house uh, in the centre of Copenhagen called Stellings House that he uh, designed for a colouring company, and it was an infill kind of like this one, created in the functionalistic style. It had a great potential uh, when it was built, and uh, I imagine that this, the Danish embassy in London, must have uh, really made attention when it was inaugurated, being in the brutalistic style, as with functionalism, I think it was carefully curated by Anne Jacobsen and, and done in a very meticulous and detailed way. He took into consideration the structure and, and the proportions in, in the streets surrounding the embassy. Towards Sloan Street, it's a high rise, 
six stories, and towards Pavilion Road, it's only two stories. So it connects to the row houses there and to the larger buildings in uh, in Sloan Street. And the courtyard is really nice. Being a part of what Anne Jacobsen liked to do is uh, taking in nature into his architecture and having this uh, quiet space in central London. It's really nice. We should point out one thing, is it that we can actually sit in the furniture and we can touch the tables and uh, and touch uh, the chest of drawers designed by Lina Depping. What I like is the combination, that we actually were able to see that the pieces connect across style, time and, and designers. I think that the contrast is uh, really, really uh, interesting in the dining room. It's a setting designed by Ulle Venture and done by the cabinet maker AJ Iversen. The sideboard has uh, tabletops in, in Öland stone, which I've never seen uh, from his work before. And, and having this uh, more traditionally made furniture in a very contemporary, brutalistic style architecture is really, really nice because you're curious what's going on here and, and you attend to the details in another way. There is a small desk he designed for the cabinet maker's autumn exhibition in I believe it was 2018, and it was called Calm. So it's very, uh, it's very subtle and and beautiful design in respect to cabinet makers' work and craftsmanship. Uh, the tabletop is is covered in in leather, and and it's got this uh, very delicate uh, drawer uh, integrated in 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 the in the construction of uh, of the table. In the drawers there, are of course, also leather in the bottom, and uh, and it's all really really nice made. Contrasting to this is an earlier piece from, from 98, uh, where he, uh, Hans Engren Jacobsen worked with the bending veneer in a very beautiful sculptural stool. Being in the space, you've got windows on both sides. You can see where you are. You're not hidden in a, in a dark place, so you can see the surroundings in central London. And then uh, having this uh, like a treasure box of a combination of Danish design and art curated by the Danish Arts Foundation. In Denmark, I think we take it for granted, but we are so privileged. We can attend schools and universities for free, and after graduating from the Royal Academy, for instance, you can apply to work at the governmental workshops, continue our education and work in uh, different departments, whether being in stone, textiles or, uh, or metal. The Danish Arts Foundation, who did the curation, at the uh, embassy is really uh, is taking into consideration to appreciate uh, the younger talents. We've got works that are really uh, trying out new paths and combining it with the more established uh, artists and designers is really, really nice. And I like the combination of art and design in one space. And now this one is for all the great British Bake Off fans. We have a delicious recipe by Poe Hollywood, one of the world's leading authorities on baking. The recipe I wanted to do, sort of go through is the apricot Danish pastries. Obviously, with a Danish pastry, you have to make the dough first and then laminate it with the butter. So to make the pastry, you need to use a large bowl, mix in the flour, the salt, the sugar, the eggs, the yeast together. 
Then you add the water and the milk and stir together to combine. It starts to come together pretty much straight away. You need to turn it around in the bowl, folding it continuously into the middle. And you need to do that for around three minutes initially and then leave it to rest. And then you come back to it after about half an hour and then begin to, again, knead it, folding it into the middle. And the dough will get smoother and smoother and smoother. And you need to do that for around 10 minutes so it's nice and smooth. For me, I would leave the dough in a bowl, covered up with a little bit of cling film, pop it in the fridge for about an hour. Minimum half an hour, maximum an hour to two hours. After that, you need to bring the dough out, knock the air out of it and shape it with a rolling pen into a, a large rectangle. At this point, you need to get your butter from the fridge and knock out the butter with a rolling pen to roughly to cover two thirds of the size of the dough that you've already rolled out. Once you've done that, Place your butter on top of your dough, fold over the dough over half the butter, and then fold the remaining butter over the dough. You should now have dough, butter, dough, butter, dough. Cling film this, pop it in the fridge for at least half an hour to solidify the butter again. Then you need to repeat that process by folding, by rolling out the dough, folding it over into the middle, and then folding it over on top again. So you end up with another three layers. It's all about building up the lamination within the dough. You need to repeat this three times. Once you've done that, chill it, preferably overnight, but if not, minimum two hours. Then you need to tip the dough out, roll it to a rectangle about 50 by 20 centimeters. And with the short side facing you, coat the butter in a little flour. And then basically what you need to do is roll this dough out into a large rectangle. Once you have it in a rectangle, Roughly, it needs to be the thickness of, I would say, about 15 mil, about 10 to 15 mil. It's quite thick, but you need it into a rectangle. Cut your blade from the top to the bottom on the short side so they look square. Once you have all the squares that have been cut, cut all your lines throughout your dough. Then you need to twist, hold one side and twist the other side and then fold it into a knot by leaving a little tongue underneath. Place this onto the tray. Once you have all of your dough knots on your tray, they need to prove up. Now, you need to cover that up just to stop it from skinning too much on the top. Once it begins to prove up, you need to prepare your creme pat, which is simple enough, which is heating up your milk and cream with vanilla paste. Then you whisk together your yolks and sugar and corn flour then you add that to your warm milk, replace it back on the pan, and then heat that up to thicken. And actually, the corn flour will use together with the eggs to thicken it beautifully. Do not overcook it. Chill that down, and then come back to your dough, place your mixture of creme pat into a piping bag, and in the middle of each knot, pipe a good spoonful of creme pat. Once you've done that, glaze the top with a little bit of egg, and then you need to bake it. Now, when you're baking it, you wanna bake it at 200 or 180 fan for around 20 minutes till golden brown. Once it comes out, place apricot on the top, half an apricot. Now these are tinned apricots on the top of each knot. Then you need to glaze it with apricot jam, which has been watered down over a pan and warmed up. Then I'm finally on top of that, you've got icing sugar, you want the zest of a lemon, and 30 ml of water together with 100 grams of icing sugar. You blend that together 
into a watery paste and then rub it all around the outside without touching the apricot. Leave that to cool and enjoy. And to end the show, here is a nice selection of summary tracks for you on a very special episode of The Global Countdown. We are continuing with the summer theme, I've been told, Fernando. Tell us more. It's our second part of the summer soundtrack, and basically it's connected to our new issue, which is out now. It's a quality of life special. And I compiled a list of 100 songs for the summer, divided in five different moods. So I'll play one song for each mood for you, Marcus. So we're not actually counting down to anything this time around, are we? These songs are not in a specific order. No, they were all chosen by me. So I, it's basically my very own countdown. But I hope you like it. I think you were a big part of it, I have to say, but we discussed this a little bit later. The first mood, Marcus, is Road Trip. Mm -hmm. And you can see even in the title for that song. Let's have a listen and then we speak a little bit more about this. It's the wonderful and iconic share with Hell on Wheels. What kind of road trips do you have planned for this summer, Fernando? Everywhere. Well, I'm, I'm heading to Mexico very soon, so perhaps I'll be listening to this. And you know in the video, Marcus, it's basically Cher roller skating in a road full of trucks. And she's there. It's iconic. It's from 1979. Quite disco, but with some rock touches to it as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, she can't go wrong, I have to say. I have I nothing see, bad to say about Cher. I can see from your face that you did really enjoy that. I wonder, what do you think about the next track? Obviously, you like it because you have picked it. Yes. It, this is apero time. So it's, it's, you know, it's something before dinner. A little bit gentle, but still funky. So you can still dance to it. And this one is a kind of a remix of a very old track uh, from Japan by Maria Takuchi called Count What You Have Now, but it's being remixed by Vantage, which I believe it's a French DJ. Let's have a listen. I would probably have to have quite a few drinks during my apero time if I was listening to this track. I mean, it's it's wonderful. <laughs> Why a few drinks you didn't <laughs> like it? It's it's great. It's a bit J-funk. Uh, and, and Vantage is great. I think he loves Japanese music and he kind of remixes all of those classics as well. I think these songs are in funny order because doesn't afternoon sunbathing happen before apero time? It's summer, we're all a bit drunk, so the order can be, it's all a bit mixed up. But yeah, our next mood is afternoon sunbathing. So it's something very gentle, so you can feel the rays of light in your body. And this track, I have to say, Marcus, I actually like ambient music. I don't think you knew this about me. No, something new. I love it. I feel at peace and I do listen to this quite a lot. You can have a drink as well when, when you your afternoon sunbathing. Let's have a listen. They are from Italy. It's the band is called Aura Safari and the song is called Dreams of Music. So 
I'm trying to imagine your holiday plans. You've had half a dozen of Aperol spritzes and then you're listening to this track when you're sunbathing. Yes, definitely, definitely. And and our safari, that's the whole vibe of their music. So you, you kind of, you're transported to kind of a desert island and, and listening to dreams of music. I, I think it's pretty cool. I wonder where you're being transported when you listen to the next track that actually happens to be from Finland. And I have to say that this artist is from my hometown of Sealinjärvi originally. And Marcus, I was telling that I picked the tracks that's kind of a lie to be honest we had some help from the monaco 20 from the monaco staff and you are the one who suggested this track and i completely agree with you it's perfect for our next mood which is euro dance floor uh, he is indeed from your hometown isaac sene can you pronounce the name of the song before we have a listen oh you're Marcus? trying to escape your responsibility yes. so this is kuma yaba <laughs> It's oh, sexy. we could have played it longer. Yes, it's <laughs> sexy. It's it's great. And is it true, Marcus, that he tried actually to be the Finnish entry for Eurovision? He was trying, but I, I don't think the Finnish... Finnish people are a bit conservative when it comes to Eurovision. They always go for the artists they know already. So this year round we sent Rasmus to represent us. I need to go for a proper sit-down with the Finnish people because this could do very well at Eurovision. Well, it's not on Eurovision, but it's in our uh, summary list, right? Mm. Which is good enough. I wonder, I, I, I'm quite sure the next track is one of your favorites, actually, because it happens to be from Brazil, I understand. And the theme is Brazilian sunset. Brazilian sunset. And you can interpret that the whatever you want so basically it's late night it's a bit romantic it's a bit fun uh, and this is indeed a classic uh, artist from brazil his name is pepeu gomes the song is called sexy yemanja what is yemanja yemanja she is the brazilian goddess of seas to be honest i say brazilian but a lot of people in cuba and nigeria also have yemanja as a goddess so she there's even a festival in brazil where you kind of uh, give flowers to yemanja when you go to the sea and then you just drop like a flower in the ocean for her and apparently you know this song's about the sexy uh, Yemanja sexy goddess shall we have a listen Marcus Brazilian, when you are in Brazil in your home country, how much do you celebrate Yemanja over there? I mean, I like Yemanja. You know what I like actually about Brazil and this song? All religions in Brazil, sometimes there's a mix and match. So it doesn't matter if you're Catholic, Jewish, Muslim, everybody kind of likes Yemanja and give flowers to her. It doesn't matter your religion. Uh, and, and, and and it's playful. I, I, I quite like it. So when it. you're in Sao Paulo, where do you take those flowers to sexy well, Yemanja? We don't have actually an ocean, <laughs> so you have to go to the beach, which to be honest, the nearest one is an hour away. So, you know, and, on the 2nd of February, you can go there. That's the date you celebrate her. Exactly. That's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week. Thanks for listening.